Sprouta opens up a world of collective expertise and unique solutions for organizations who have the drive to maximize their impact and want to do good work in the world. Sprouta gives you a new way to identify and solve your real challenges within people, performance, and culture. This is a Sprouta podcast. Hi, my name is Craig Foreman, also known as Culture Craig, and I'm a lead people scientist with CultureAmp, the world's top-ranked people and culture platform. I've always been driven by a genuine curiosity of people and have built a career around my personal mission to help the world work better by improving the places we work. In this podcast, we're amplifying the professional and personal stories of people in our industry who are passionate about making a difference and courageously delivering better experiences for humans at work. This is Humanity Works with me, Culture Craig. Three, two, one. Here we go. Buying a one-way ticket to Japan as a 21-year-old, Adam King never thought he would still be there 21 years later. Fresh out of college with absolutely no Japanese language, Adam managed to not only survive but thrive and over the years has built a career, family, and life in Japan. Adam is now a senior manager at Amazon, and in his current role, he looks after executive development for people within the operations business worldwide. Both personally and professionally, Adam has courageously embraced vulnerability to build trust, deep connections, and a successful career centered around people-related work. Fundamentally, like as people, we're all looking for the same thing. How do you leverage that connectivity, but how do you then facilitate it so that people who are not connected or people who don't have that relationship really understand each other, appreciate difference, accept difference, but then find a mutual way to move forward. Adam King, hello. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Craig. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. I was excited to to get you here. I think there's a lot of great stuff to talk about today. You know, when when I heard you were coming on and knowing about your background and where you are, I'm just like really looking forward to getting your perspective and point of view. I'm happy to share whatever I can. So. so let's start with the first intro. I met you in a more professional context mm-hmm. and you're introducing yourself. How would you introduce yourself? I'd introduce myself as a senior manager working at Amazon. Recently, I took over a, a team focusing on executive development for people within the operations business worldwide. So that covers all main geographies and it's probably like the largest element of the the business so that's where i am i've been in people related work like whether it's talent development talent management or a combination of the two ever since i came to japan ever since i graduated from university wasn't really anything i deliberately chose to do but then as i fell more into it i i got more connected and and kind of realized actually it's something that for me, it's it's quite important, not just from a, a learning and, and development perspective, but more about how that plays out on the much broader scale of society. And that, for me, was what kept me interested and, and what really has got me where I am today. So The second question is, let's go a level deeper. If I said, Adam, introduce yourself. What wouldn't we know about you from your LinkedIn profile? Or like, who are you beyond just your professional self? How would you introduce yourself? What should the world know? I'm a an avid dog fan um i've got a, a german shepherd winston um so we're doing training every week um, we're going into the mountains sometimes we're going into competitions and things um so my son's a lot better at dog competitions than i am but he's uh yeah we, we just got a, a great dog 
Um, so he keeps him busy, walks, just everything. It's just so refreshing just to see the connection between a human and, and the dog and just how super smart he is. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, outside of work, if I'm not at the gym or if I'm not reading, I'm just with my dog and it's awesome. Amazing. Anything else people might not know about you from looking at your online presence? So I come from a very small town in the UK, but I've li- spent most of my life living in Japan, not in the UK. So I'd probably be more of a hybrid citizen rather than a British citizen, I think, at this point. Um, I don't know. Many people might not know that. But yeah, so I've I've lived in Japan for 20, coming on 21 years now. So it's a, it's, it's a very different side of me. I guess I'm in some ways more Asian than I am Western. And yet I don't look Asian at all. I'm a very typical white British guy. But my outlook on life is, uh, is maybe a little bit different. And that's been shaped obviously by my yeah. work experience, but mostly my experience of being in Japan as well. That's something I think you won't see on my LinkedIn page. I love that. So you know we're going to talk more about Japan and culture, but if I had to ask if just succinctly, Mm -hmm. if you or you had 30 seconds to a minute to say what's the biggest like cultural takeaway you've gotten from being in Japan for the last 20 some odd years, which is more than half your life or close to it, what is that thing? I could probably describe in three words. So one is trust. I think the other is acceptance. And then the other is vulnerability. And they all kind of go together in that if you can't accept, not just accept other people, but if you can't accept your own differences, if you can't accept your own shortcomings, then you're not going to be able to accept anybody else. But if you can't accept anybody else, they're not going to accept you. And then trust is not going to come because of that. But then when I kind of look at it at a slightly lower, uh, like deeper level, for me, the reason why it's difficult for people to to accept others or it's difficult for people to trust the others is because they can't be vulnerable in front of other people and my whole time spent in japan has been being vulnerable in front of other people because i couldn't speak the language i didn't understand mm. the culture i didn't understand the norms of operating in the society so i was constantly in a vulnerable situation not deliberately but just because of where i was and what i was doing but i kind of realized that if you can kind of tap into that concept of putting yourself deliberately into a vulnerable situation, it actually becomes easier for you to accept what's going on around you. And at the personal level, then it becomes a little bit easier to figure out how you can make that connection where you can build that level of trust. Mm -hmm. I would probably say they're the three key takeaways I've had of being over here in Asia, but specifically in Japan. It's so interesting too. And you mentioned, you really brought for me, so I was in the military, which some of the listeners know I've spoken about before, but what Mm -hmm. I did was a linguist. Um, so I studied language and um, having had that experience has really evolved, done a lot for me. But what you just spoke about brought back that memory of, you know, if you, especially if you know the language, if you look like everybody else, it's very easy to get comfortable. But it, if you don't know the language, it strips that away so quickly. Like you have to live. So when you said that, it reminded me of when I was spending time in Mexico and not knowing the language very well. And that vulnerability, it just, you know, in the pit of my stomach, I can still feel it. You're, you're fully exposed, uh, you have limited language, <laughs> and you're trying so hard to be seen. Yep. And then you've got kind of like one or two choices. You can either accept that and you can just try and figure out how to deal with it, or you can push back against it. And if you push back against it, then you're only going to come up against a brick wall because you're not yep. going to change society by yourself. You're not going to change the working environment by yourself. So you have to 
learn how to adapt to that and you can't adapt if you're just not willing to accept that it's something that you're not used to or you don't have the answers to or in some cases you don't even have the right questions to ask to find the answers but it's just being in that situation and you you either go with it or you don't go with it sometimes to my detriment i've been a little too flexible when it comes just going with the flow and not necessarily having purpose or having specific guide like a direction of where i want to go and what i want to do but maybe I don't know, maybe that was some divine right I didn't see, but it's like, it's kind of got me to where I am now. But you know, Wait, you just... said to your detriment, <laughs> say, say more, what do you mean? How has it been to your detriment? Well, I mean, I kind of compared myself to what would be considered like the, the norm coming from the UK when it goes regards to family or schooling or edu- like sort of higher education, go to university or really deciding early on what you want to do with your career or what kind of area you're interested in. But I didn't really think about that. I mean, I I mentioned it to you before, but, and I don't mind admitting it because I think it was a good learning experience for me, but I failed my university entrance exam, my high school test. So I had to repeat a year. That was really because I didn't know, A, did I want to study? Did I want to go to university? Did I want to get a job? I was just like in a bit of a bubble, to be honest with you. And I just kind of went along with the flow. And that's why I think to my detriment that maybe like 25 years ago, if I knew then obviously what I know now, maybe I would have changed my direction or maybe I'd have done things differently. I don't know. Being flexible and being able to adapt to changing environment and and like ambiguity, I think is super important. But you also need to kind of balance that with at least having some grounding. Otherwise, you could end up going completely in a direction where you don't want to go. I mean, thankfully for me, I didn't go in a direction where I didn't want to go. I just went in a di- direction I didn't know existed until I went there. I'm really happy. I'm happy you brought that up. I'm happy you owned like the fact that you struggled at that one point in your education because I, I too have a bit of that story. You know, I had uh, a bit of a disrupted childhood and wasn't sure what I wanted to do after high school, and it was a few, and then I took a few years off, and then I went to the military uh, so I could pay for college as well. So I also I know with me as I look back but I was social and I wanted to connect with others. So all those things, maybe I wasn't the best student. I see where those play today. I also see at that time, given what was going on in my life, I was over indexing in that side and not mm-hmm. really focusing, you know, so, which the next question before I want to hear kind of the, the, what got you to Japan, but I love this question because I feel like many of us that get into this kind of work, you're doing leadership and development. Although, like you said, it kind of worked itself out. Now that you see yourself here and you look back, is there an event or an earlier time in your life that you can say, I kind of knew it then, or I saw that in me then, I didn't know where it was going? Like, what was that first time that you can say, looking back, like, I knew this was my kind of work? That's a great question. I would say there are a few events, I, I wouldn't like describe a single event that was the, the maybe the trigger, but there were a few cumulative events that put me in a position where, where I had to be a bridge between different groups of people. And different groups of people with different ideas different beliefs different goals and i was basically facilitating that conversation between these two groups of people to try and come to a successful resolution and i eventually got there but it was during that process that you know there are thousands and thousands of books written about how to manage teams or how to lead people and they're all great stuff but at the end of the day like there are some fundamentals that we just need to get in place and one of them is that ability to connect people. And so I see myself now not as someone who's going to be educating others or imparting knowledge on others or sharing like the best leadership model that 
is out there because that always changes. But for me, it's just that message about how as leaders we grow as facilitators with other people. And that was kind of like my experience where like, I believe that if you take all of the other leadership skill and technical knowledge that somebody has, and then on top of that, you have and you build this ability for them to facilitate conversation, for them to facilitate interaction and, and facilitate that connection with other people. I think that's where you kind of like you magnify all of the other skills and everything becomes like so much better. And so I was like, OK, well, how can I help other people just to facilitate that connection with other people? And that was coming from those experiences where I was in a position where I had to kind of like lead those discussions. And I realized then I said, you know what, I'm, I might be pretty good at this. <laughs> so let's explore it a little bit more and see what, like how I might be able to kind of like take that forward. And Did you see this in your childhood? Was it there when you were young? Other things you look back and like, when I was 10, I used to do that thing where I was helping make sense for people of things or? No, not at all. Not at, not all. at all. I mean, I, I think I was very different from, from how you describe your childhood in that I was not social. I was very much introvert i still am to a certain degree but i was not out with my friends all the time i was not part of like large groups of anything else i was very much like to myself so no i, I don't think i was ever in a position where i had to do that mm -hmm. it was always me sort of like just avoiding being in the limelight or avoiding being sort of like the center of attention and i don't particularly like being center of attention now and that's one of the good things i like about being in japan and the irony of that and i can explain that a bit later but I do like being able just to to fix things. And when I say fix things, for me, it's just about fixing the relationship or fixing the connection mm. between like one person and another person. And I'm good at that. And that's kind of like where I, I've sort of, maybe it's a bit of a niche for me, I don't know, but that's kind of always been my angle with the work that I'm doing. It's like, how do you take something that maybe people don't even know is broken. And you, again, I keep going back to the same thing, but you facilitate that conversation, you facilitate that connection, and then you really kind of build on that foundation. Okay, last question about uh, the earlier days. I'm so curious, did you have siblings? I've got an older sister, yeah. Older sister, you were the youngest of two. We're polar opposite. Um, she's very much more outgoing. She's very much more social. She's very much more in control of everything that she's done, everything that she's doing. <laughs> Um, some of that may be related to the work that she, I mean, she's a, a senior member of the Metropolitan Police, so maybe that's part and parcel of the job that she does, I don't know. Where is that? Back in the UK? Yeah, in, in London. Yeah, so she's doing phenomenally well in, in her career. I think she very much deliberately shaped from a very early on in her life, like when she went to university and what she was studying university that led to being in the police and then like the whole career that she's had while being in the, in the police. I mean, she's very much in control of that in terms of what she wants to do and where she wants to go and how she wants to kind of expand on it. So in that sense, we're completely opposite. I always used to kind of hide away from any confrontation or any kind of situation that involved having a discussion with somebody or having a conversation with someone that had something that had an idea that was different from what I had. And that's why I find it's quite interesting because now I'm doing completely the opposite and I've kind of like come full 360. But when I was growing up, I hated being in that kind of environment. I hated having to say no to somebody or I hated having to challenge an idea that somebody had or just having to disagree with somebody just because I had a different point of view. And sometimes I came across as very belligerent. Sometimes I came across maybe even a little, not I wouldn't say rude, but certainly naive in my thinking or whatever, just because I was very uncomfortable being in 
an environment where I had to connect with other people and I had to communicate with other people and I had to to openly discuss with other people. I I found that quite challenging. So was that the move to Japan? Like, was that the, what, what, you know, I guess my question is what was the turning point was the trigger, you know, you, you were a certain way growing up and clearly you're doing a completely other thing now. Was there a moment or was it the transition in culture that, 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 that drove that transition? Yeah, I think it was from two angles. One, and this might sound very strange to, to a lot of your, your listeners, but for me being in Japan, it's kind of unique in the sense that, I mean, I'm six foot two, I'm blonde hair and I'm white. And so I'm quite visible. And yet, ironically, I can walk down the street anywhere in Japan and I can be completely anonymous meaning no one will come and speak to me, no one will come and interact with me, no one will engage with me unless I want it to happen. If I wanted to speak to people, then absolutely, like people are very friendly and they're very open. But if I don't want to have that personal connection, I can literally walk down any street, anywhere in this country, and it will be like I don't exist. Now, some people would interpret that as being potentially prejudiced or racist or like anything else, and quite rightly so. But for me, when I first came out to Japan at that time, I didn't know it then, but that was something I was looking for. Mm. Just the ability to to get on with what I was doing without having any kind of pressure, real or imagined, around me. So I could just kind of like, just try and figure out who I was and what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And so that helped me a lot. So I could I could just be myself in an environment in a society where there was no pressure on me whatsoever because basically people were ignoring me or they didn't know how to come connect with me because I wasn't Japanese and they assumed I couldn't speak and they assumed quite rightly that I couldn't speak Japanese when I first came out so that freedom it gave me time to think Mm -hmm. and it really gave me time to put into context a lot of what had happened up until then and again it's just I was very slow to the slow to the table. I think in that I could have learned all of that a lot sooner, but I didn't. It just really happened when I when I came out to Japan, and then it all kind of clicked in place. That and then being in, like I said, in in an, an environment where because I can't speak the language, because I couldn't really engage verbally, I had to find other ways to interact with people so that I could survive and so that I could actually have an enjoyable time. And so that forced me out of not necessarily a comfort zone because I wasn't comfortable in it. It was like forced me out of the funk that I was in literally for the whole of my childhood. And it just kind of opened up a new way of me thinking about things. And so it didn't, I don't think it wasn't just like a a light switch that just went on. It just happened. And again, I didn't necessarily consciously think, okay, well, you, you did this wrong and this wrong. We could have done this differently. Now let's do this. But it just kind of naturally developed and then you realize, well, you know what? You've, like things have changed and this is what you should have done and this is how we can take it forward so it sounds like you needed that space to be almost isolated for a bit that you couldn't find anywhere else and shifting cultures gave you the space to process the way you needed to yeah and i think looking back at my childhood experience that's probably why i was in retrospect introvert because i was looking for my own space at that time but i just couldn't find it or i couldn't i didn't understand how to find my own space or you said belligerent almost like you had to fight for your own space in that environment yeah and it was just i think me being not not understanding it but also not being smart enough to to realize how to do it at that time it's funny you talk about you talk about maybe being late to the game you told me you know you moved to what 21 22 you moved to japan so you were yep. 
kind of a young guy moving to Japan. I mean, gosh, I, w- I didn't get out of the military until I was 25. And then I returned to college. It was 28 before I was done with college. So in some ways you had this journey pretty young. But I have to ask the question because anybody listening to this is going to be thinking the same thing I'm thinking. How did a white British guy from the UK end up in Japan? Like what what brought you to Japan? How did this come to be? Well, I've shared this story and I'll share it again. It, it is a little embarrassing, but I'm quite open to talking about it. After I graduated from university, I stayed on in my university town. I had my friends there. Um, I was playing rugby at the time. But then we wanted to decide, okay, well, what, what are we doing? Where are we going? What do you want to do with your, your, yourselves and, and everything else? And we had like a, a group discussion over too many pints of Guinness on St. Patrick's night. And I'm not a big drinker. So that was the worst experience ever in a, in a positive way. It was the worst experience ever. <laughs> um, so I was procrastinating about what I wanted to do. And my friends knew that I was interested in traveling and I was interested in, in going out of the UK before really settling down and, and trying to figure out what career I wanted to, to start getting into. And so we, we had a, a discussion as we were, we were drinking and we finally came to a decision between China, Korea or Japan. And of course, I didn't know anything about either of those countries being a naive 21 year old from the UK. We, uh, we, we quickly took China off the list just because 20 years ago, it was a lot less open than what it is now. And I knew literally nothing about China other than the fact that a few hundred years before that, Britain had some involvement in Shanghai and Hong Kong and things. I was super naive. So it was a, a, a toss up between Korea and uh, and Japan. But we couldn't make any kind of logical discussion or anything like that because nobody knew anything about Asia and in these countries. So I just tossed a, to- tossed a coin at the request of one of my friends. Tails was Korea, heads was Japan, turned up heads. Next day, with a, a very bad hangover, my friends and I, we went to a travel agent and I got my one-way ticket because I only had enough money left from my student days for a one-way ticket to Japan. Um, and then I came out here. It's like, I would not recommend that decision or that journey to anybody, but that's how it's how I got here. And All like by yourself. 20, yeah, 20, 21 years later, I'm still here. I love that story only because I know a lot of people do listen to these sorts of things. And so many of these podcasts, everybody talks about the, the clear path and it seemed very direct. And like I've already, you know, in our conversations, you know, I, I relate in this way. And I think it's important to share that, that sometimes it's not a clear path. Sometimes you just have to follow those random events and, and go with it. And yeah, it's funny to hear the story, but 21 years later, here you are with a you know, career, family, you mean in Japan. And it was that strange turn of events that led to that. And sometimes life deals us strange turns of events. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Awesome. Okay. So now we've gotten to know you a little bit better. Bring us up to speed. Tell me a little bit about your, your career and your journey. Now you're in Japan finding yourself and and as a professional, you didn't just go there to visit. I would say a journey full of opportunity. Um, also a journey full of fortune, I think, and maybe good timing, but I've worked for three companies. I've been fortunate that each of the three companies I've worked at have basically been like the industry leader in that market. Again, not by design, me choosing those companies, it just happened. So I got my first opportunity in a Japanese pharmaceutical company. They took a risk investing in someone that couldn't understand the language, couldn't speak the language, couldn't really engage with people at the cultural level, but they they obviously saw something in me, even though I was still out, fresh out of college. Um, I went into, a, again, a people role there. Um, I was there for 10 years, um, an amazing experience in many ways, certainly about 
not just understanding Japan, but understanding the concept of how people interact with each other, how people build relationships with each other, how people connect with each other. It was a fascinating journey for me that I use now in, in every facet of what I do, whether it's at work or whether it's in like my private life. I moved over from there to, to Goldman Sachs, so from pharmaceuticals into investment banking, again, in the same kind of role. And one thing that became very clear to me early on is that even though we might talk about it in a different way or the language that you use is slightly different, fundamentally what I learned about people in my first company was 100% relevant to what I was experiencing in Goldman Sachs. Culturally, yes, very different, but the, like the foundation, there was no difference at all. So there's a lot of sort of like transferability of what I'd experienced and what I'd learned into Goldman. So I was there for five years and then moved from there over to, to Amazon where I'm at now. And again, same thing. So going from a very traditional American company, Goldman has like been in business what 150 plus years or something like that, I think it is, going to a very modern American company that's taking over the world in many respects, where you would expect to see a lot of cultural difference. And there are differences, huge differences. But again, fundamentally, at the base, it's still a people business. And what I learned as a 22-year-old in this Japanese company is what I'm using now as a 44-year-old in, in Amazon to actually do what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis because it's, it's all the same. Like that thread within culture I think for me is has been a really interesting learning experience. Say more, because that you know, I came out in our in our pre-conversation as well. This idea that you know how different these industries were in some ways couldn't be more different. Pharmaceutical to finance to logistics, and if you had to define or like if you were summarizing that thing you're talking about, like you're like as different as they were, the things that I was I learned early on have completely translated along the way in your career. What are those? I think the importance of relationship. I think the importance of trust. And again, we've talked about this earlier, but the importance of being vulnerable in front of others and with others, because I think that's the foundation for me of, of everything that we do in business. You can be a superstar, you can be the world's smartest person, but you can't do everything by yourself. So if you don't have the ability to, to build those relationships, well, then there's no scalability in the skill set that you've got or the knowledge that you've got. There's no innovation that's going to come because you can't do everything individually. And so I think like the concept of, of how people build relationships and what people are looking for in relationships is no different whether you're in the UK or whether you're in Japan or whether you're in the US. I think like fundamentally like people are people and we all have very similar like base needs to build those strong relationships. But I didn't really understand what those building blocks were until I came out to Japan because Japan as a culture itself is very much about relationship. It's very much about being vulnerable so that you can build that level of trust so that then you can go and either you can do business with each other or you can have a, a, a like good friendship or whatever it is. And so that was really where I learned for me what those successful building blocks of a strong relationship were or are. And then you look at an American culture, it's exactly the same. People want the same thing in a relationship. People want the same level of trust they want the same level of connectivity they want the same level of honesty and open openness and like there's, there's no difference but it, we assume there's a difference just because we we come from different countries or we've got different backgrounds or we've got different color skin or whatever it might be but i think fundamentally like as people we're all looking for the same thing 
I agree. And that's what I thought. That's that's been like my my kind of like my main constant throughout my career. It's like how do you leverage the power of relationship? How do you leverage that connectivity? But how do you then facilitate it so that people who are not connected or people who don't have that relationship really understand each other, appreciate difference, accept difference, but then find a mutual way to move forward. During my career, I've had the opportunity to help companies build recognition and rewards programs designed to increase employee engagement. And through that work, I gained a much deeper appreciation and respect for a fundamental truth, which is everyone at a core level simply wants to be seen and recognized. This fundamental human truth may show up differently in different cultures and in how we choose to engage with one another. But fundamentally, this is required for us to feel a sense of safety and belonging within groups. Safety is also a key ingredient in creating space for vulnerability, and that's something that Adam and I have talked a lot about. Hearing Adam talk about the vulnerability that he has stepped into while creating a life and career for himself in Japan makes me wonder about how he got there. Has it been because of the situations he has found himself in, or an outcome of the vulnerability that he was forced to step into by putting himself into an entirely different culture altogether? I think it, it's a, a combination of both of those aspects for me. So obviously, in a working environment that I've never experienced in a country that I knew nothing about, where I was unable to communicate with anybody who couldn't speak English because I didn't have any kind of proficiency in Japanese at all. And I couldn't read Japanese, but it's very different from reading sort of like European languages. So it's like I was in a position where I knew nothing. I knew no one. I didn't know how to survive, as in, yes, I knew how to go to a supermarket and buy food and stuff like that, but I didn't always know what I was buying. I mean, I remember one day I bought a, an ice cream that I thought was a strawberry ice cream. It looked like strawberries on the uh, the wrapping, but it wasn't. It turned out to be red beans, which is a traditional dessert in, in Japan. So I, it was a really hot day for me. Um, I was really excited about eating this ice cream when I got back in the bin and just like, oh my God, like what's that? Yeah, I put it in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that level of vulnerability is like, you just, there's so much that you just don't know, but you can't react against that natively because you're never going to learn. So I, it, would, it would have been easy for me just to get on a plane and go back home, or it would have been easy for me to push against the challenges I was facing or to push against the differences and just say, no, not for me, my way or the highway kind of thing. But that wasn't the kind of individual that I was. It's not who I am now. So just embracing the fact that you don't know anything or you don't know enough and then figuring out how to survive in that to find out what you need to do to survive or to thrive that for me is about vulnerability right in a lot of societies the society that i grew up in whether it was linked to my family or like school or whatever showing somebody else that you didn't know something was never a good thing like you always got to be kind of like on the ball like you've got to know what you're talking about you've got to know kind of like what you're interested in stuff like that yeah if you expose a weakness it could be it could be exploited yeah i mean being being able to say to someone you know i i don't know anything about this i'm i've never done this please tell me was never really something that was sort of openly supported in my childhood um, and i think that kind of led to me not really understanding that concept of vulnerability until i came out to japan and um, so that's one element to it if you look at and this is just my personal experience so it may not be accurate but from my personal experience business in japan is done based on the strength of the relationship that you have with the opposite person not necessarily on how good a business you can 
provide or how good a service that you can deliver to somebody. And so if you invest time to build a strong relationship with people in Japan at a business level, then you're likely to have very positive outcome. You're likely to get really good results. You're likely to, to have a fruitful relationship, but it takes time to build that. And for me, the biggest two elements of building those relationships in Japan comes from trust and vulnerability. And it's not just trusting non-Japanese. It's exactly the same, whether you're Japanese or non-Japanese. The concept and the process that people go through doesn't change in that if you can't trust the person that you are talking to 100%, literally with anything and with everything, it's very difficult to build that relationship. That's kind of like the mentality. So yes, you've got like the surface level conversation and you're like you're praising people and everything else. But underneath that, you've got that deeper level of connection. And that deeper level of connection comes from being vulnerable in front of the other person. If you're not in a position where you're open, you're able to show yourself mm -hmm. good and bad mm -hmm. to the other person, they're not going to trust you. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, we, we all know nobody's perfect. Yeah. Everybody has got something that we do wrong or that we make a mistake in, or that we disagree with somebody else. And that, that's normal. That's natural. Yeah. But if we can't open up to that, then it's very difficult to build that level of working trust. And if you can't build that level of working trust, then something within a Japanese environment, it's very difficult really to have like a, a, a sustained connection over a long period of time. Yeah. So that element of vulnerability is what I learned as well. You know, when you mentioned what you grew up seeing, it, you know, again, you grew up in the UK, I grew up in the States, but I think some of the, it reminded me of some, I think some of the stories that I've seen, particularly in Western culture of masculinity and don't show weakness, strength, don't, you know, if you don't know it, you better not say anything at all. Um, do you think young men in, in Japan, is it a different even from the, like how it is growing up? Or do you think they have some of the same messages? I think they have some of the same messages, but with a slightly different twist on it. In that, let's say, for example, in the US or in, in the UK, it's expected for you to take the lead, for you to constantly be raising your hand or, or like stepping out and showing how you're different from other people and like your creativity and your uniqueness. In Japan, it's the opposite. You're, there's more pressure on you to conform to the norm, to suppress yourself in some ways, in that you might have an amazing idea that's better than somebody else's idea but because of team dynamic or group dynamic you don't share that idea or you do but not in a very ostentatious way or anything like that so there are pressures that exist but i think they, they look at it from a slightly different a uh, slightly different perspective all right so let's keep going with vulnerability but now let's move to this professional like you do leadership development you're moving into a, like developing executives how do we develop and nurture this this vulnerability? I mean, I think it's such a it's being spoken about everywhere now. I think more and more people are realizing the power. I mean, I think I think I think vulnerability honestly is opposite of what people think. That the more vulnerable I've gotten and being willing to stand there vulnerable is 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 in its own way powerful. Um, it also I think leads to better leaders, better leadership um, to be able to say I don't know or I'm wrong or what do you think or mm -hmm. how do we develop that in organizations or what are your thoughts on that? How do we how do we help leaders and managers cultivate this? That's an extremely difficult question to answer. Um, I think some of it is, is because of the culture of, in, of firms, some of it because of like individuals. I think some of it's even to do with the way employees are paid or the way that they are given like bonuses or anything like that. In that sometimes, like you, you have to have like a persona 
where you know everything, that you're the best at everything, and then people perceive you in that way. And if they perceive you in that way and the results go favorably, then you get more recognition for that. It's unusual for somebody to step in front of a whole group of others and like if their peers or their more senior leaders and say, look, sorry, I, like, all these questions you're asking me, I, I don't know the answers to. I'm unaware of any of this. I have to go and figure it out. I've got to go and work it out. Like just even saying that sometimes to somebody that's in a more senior position is, again, is considered as a sign of weakness, right? And, you know, we talk a lot about, I, like, no question's a bad question. Like, everything is like, yes, if you don't understand it, call it out and say, I don't understand it. But the reality is, that's not how most, or at least from my experience, that's not how a lot of working environments are. So there's, there's still underlying current of expectation that the more senior you get in the company, the higher up in the company you go, that you know every answer to every question. And you can think of questions that nobody else has even thought of, and you can provide the answers, and that's how you kind of guide the company forward. But the reality is different, right? And that you, we don't know the answers to a lot of these questions, and sometimes we don't even know what these questions are that we need to be asking. So just being able to, I think, for me, have courage to step back and pause and say, look, no, I don't know the answer to this, or I want your opinion, or I want to get other people's points of view before I make a decision or before we make a decision because I'm not 100% confident on that. Actually, having an, a, a company that recognizes people when they're in a vulnerable position as a good thing and actually kind of like supports them to do that. I don't think we have that kind of mentality in most companies. I mean, if somebody is vulnerable, it seems or they've got maybe a potential issue, whether it's like a stress-related issue or like an ER-related issue or something. But they don't, people don't embrace vulnerability as actually a, a very powerful way of learning something that they don't know. And so it's like, I don't think that a company can necessarily kind of like push this onto people. I think it's very much something that individuals have to do take ownership of themselves and it's something that they have to make a, a conscious decision to do themselves in that how do I want other people to see me as a manager or as a leader what is this identity I want to portray to other people so that they will see me in a certain way and if they want to see me as someone that knows all the answers and is amazing, great, go ahead and do that. But the reality is you're always going to be falling down because you don't know all of these answers. And it's like, but if you want to be seen as someone who people can relate to, people can connect with, people can come to when they're uncomfortable as well because they don't know, then you need to start demonstrating that in front of others. Because if you demonstrate, I th and I tell my, my leaders this all the time, but if you demonstrate a an identity or like your leadership in a, a way where you know every answer or you know the best direction it's unlikely that your team will ever come and consult you when they don't know something because they will feel that they've always got to be the person with the right answer when they come to you and it's like you're just missing so much i'm the biggest fan of vulnerability but i think under that especially in leadership is trust like yeah. Right. If if you always have the answers, can I really trust you? And if you never have the answers, you're always going to let me find that out. Can I trust you? But if you can toe that line and both seem competent but willing at times to say, I don't know, I think those are the people that were, I mean, what what is leadership? It's about people with the willingness to follow a leader, right? You need followers yep. to have yep. be a leader. So trust is in there. Yeah. And yep. because you can be super vulnerable all the time, but not cultivate trust. And you can be... Mm -hmm. 
insecure and act like you have all the answers all the time, but not cultivate trust. So it's this delicate balancing act. And, and where does trust lie in there? Absolutely. I mean, how you would then kind of visualize that and demonstrate it on a regular basis through your behaviors, through your habits, how other people on your team would then demonstrate the same types of behaviors and how that would then influence the way that he or she would then connect with somebody else on your team. As the leader, as the manager, you've got that influence on everybody. It comes through the way that you act on a day-to-day -day basis. And so if you really want people to feel safe at work, if you really want people to feel that, yes, they can show others that they don't know or that they want to get help from other people and they can openly talk about it, then like it starts with the people at the top. They've got to do that as well. If they're always seen as the trailblazers and they know everything, like the culture that's going to come underneath that is, well, we've got to do the same. Otherwise, we're never going to get to the top. And I think there's a, a disconnect in a lot of organizations at the moment where it makes it difficult for people to really genuinely open up and say, look, sorry, I'm, I'm really made a mistake on this or sorry, I really don't know what I need to do here or this is way over my depth. Please help me kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Generally, I don't think a lot of companies have and have built an environment that facilitates that discussion with between a manager or a leader and his or her team. I don't, I don't think, I haven't seen that enough. So here's a question that keeps coming to mind for me. It's interesting. You and I are roughly the same age. You've, we've basically, my whole career has been in the States. Your whole career has been Japan. In my time, in my career, it's been, it, I'm, I feel particularly in the work I do, it's, I wouldn't be doing this work if this wasn't the case. This, there's a shift happening. There's a shift happening in how we, interact with each other. The fact you and I are sitting here spending most of this conversation on vulnerability in our organizations, I don't know that was the conversation five, 10 years ago. I'm curious from your perspective, is it is there is there a big, is noticeable of a shift happening in Japan uh, in organizational culture as I would imagine seeing in other places in the Western world? Yes and no. I mean, for companies that have some kind of connection outside of Japan, whether it's through M&A or any other kind of like partnership deal or whatever, yes. The degree of influence varies obviously by company, but yes, you can start to see more change. However, if you go to a, a very domestic Japanese company and it's a company that has, let's say, no overseas or non-Japanese employees, it doesn't have any kind of overseas partnerships or anything like that. Unless it's a very progressive Japanese company, you're more likely to see a very, very traditional working environment that really misses out on a lot of what we've been discussing. So I think, yeah, there's still a long way to go, but I would say that that's probably the same in any country. I mean, if, if you have companies or organizations that have that level of global exposure, mm -hmm. There's an expectation now being placed on those organizations, not just to lead the people in the companies, not just to lead the business, but to, to lead society, to lead communities. And so I think those companies are facing a lot more pressure and are under a lot more scrutiny to start addressing a lot of these issues that we've been discussing. But, you know, you go beyond, below that level where you've got an organization, whether it's a medium, small size business that doesn't have that level of pressure or that level of expectations not there. Of course, you'll see huge variance in in how they would respond to things like we've been discussing as well. And I think that's just that that should be a normal case, right? How do we take what large companies, let's say, like where I'm working at now, are being asked to do, like the position that they're being asked to take within society to really help change and and address some of the the, the key issues that people are discussing at this point? How do we take that 
level of ownership and cascade it down through different levels of organizations so that we can then have a, a, a far, a much more sort of like far-reaching impact. I think that's something that we need to kind of still figure out. One of the things that I've learned through my experience in building CultureAmp's global community is that being overly prescriptive simply does not work. One of CultureAmp's values is to trust others to make decisions, and we've always given our global chapters the space to make the decisions that best support their unique needs in their own unique ways. Because we all have different operating systems, different histories, and that this means that our values will be interpreted and brought to life in different ways. I've found that to do this successfully, it requires a deep focus on listening to understand. When I connected with Adam before our conversation, one of the things that he really wanted to convey was this idea of getting beneath the words. It's such a powerful message. And so I asked Adam to share why that's been so important for him and how he practices active listening to build stronger relationships in a noisy world. I've been guilty of this so many times. It, I've probably lost count, to be honest with you. That, like when you're listening to somebody else, there's always that natural tendency to, to start thinking either of your own experience or let's say you're having a, a discussion and you disagree with that person's point of view. Half the time, you're already thinking of your rebuttal to their point of view. Like you're not even really considering or appreciating a lot of what it is that they're talking about. And everybody talks about the importance of being able to listen and, and to really kind of understand and appreciate others. But I don't think people dedicate enough time to practicing doing that. It's so difficult just to be able to stay focused on what somebody is saying, keeping your mind completely free of anything else, but just focusing purely on what that person is saying with the sole intent of just to understand, not to agree or disagree, not to come back with a, uh, your point of view or share your own experience, but with the sole purpose of just to understand what he or she is trying to say. And that sounds extremely simple, but it's such a difficult thing to do because the pressure that people are on, whether it's time pressure, whatever it might be, it, like, it, it, it creates an environment where being able to listen to somebody is extremely challenging. But if you can't listen to not just the words that somebody's saying, but the emotions that are connected to the words that people are saying, or the, the tension or the happiness or whatever it might be that you can see in that person as they're telling you whatever it is they're telling you, if you can't listen to that as well as listening to the words, you're not going to get the right understanding. And if you can't get that right level of understanding, the next stage for me then becomes even more difficult. And the next stage, for me then is just to accept what that person has just said and that is probably more challenging for a lot of people because if it's something that you disagree with and if it's a very contentious issue and you strongly disagree with it it's almost impossible for you to sit calmly and accept what that person has just said to you because you so strongly disagree and yet that pause of fully understanding then accepting why that person said it, not necessarily what they said, but like accepting why that person said that, why they're feeling it. For me, and I use this now all the time, it gives me that little bit of extra space to then check myself before I respond. And I found that really helpful. I mean, there's been many a time where I didn't listen to what really what people were saying, where I didn't have the right level of understanding and I didn't necessarily accept what they were saying. And I responded and the conversation didn't work. And that was my fault. 
And I think anybody listening to this, I mean, we're humans, like this is hard work, which means at some point, all of us, even now, I think I do this really well. And I catch myself sometimes if, if, if I get triggered, it's, it's very difficult. It is. You know, I think for anybody listening, I I'll share a tip and you've already shared a tip, maybe one, another one, but what I've really worked on is one is, is no, I think we all know that feeling that internal, your blood pressure goes up a little bit. You start to kind of, your brain starts to go and like letting that tell me that um, I'm slipping. And then my mantra is stay curious, Just stay curious. Like doesn't like what you said, it doesn't mean you agree. It doesn't mean you're complicit. Can we stay curious to, trying to understand? Cause I think there's so much in this world right now. If we could just stay one more curious about one another and hear what what's under, is it fear? Is it, you know, is it, happiness is it what is it like cause those are the things we all experience collectively absolutely and i think you've explained <laughs> much better than i could what i was trying to explain when i'm i'm referred to that word acceptance mm. i think everything you just explained there is about that you you have to accept the other person whether you like them or not whether you like their idea or not, it doesn't really matter you've got to accept that that's a person that has a point of view and that's their point of view then how do you respond to that in a way that's not going to raise tension or to cause any kind of like physical confrontation or any kind of upset or anything? You, you've got to be able to engage in a conversation, I think, at a level where you can bypass the human tendency to let emotion control conversation. And I, I talk about this, what, like how to detach emotion from conversation. Mm. I think I'm pretty good at doing that now in most situations not in every situation absolutely not um, but certainly in most situations where before you go into a conversation that you're going to have with somebody even if you know it's going to be a really positive conversation you still got to detach any kind of baggage that you might have before you start speaking to that person and you make a conscious effort so one thing i do and maybe it's just something peculiar i do i don't know but when i'm meeting with my team or when i'm meeting with anybody else i always look at my past engagements with those individuals and what i was feeling at that time or what we talked about and what that kind of conjured up in me and i just draw it down on a piece of paper and i just i use that to focus myself okay the last time i met this person this is how i was feeling this is the result of what happened when i felt that way and that enables me to then detach that emotion and it sounds it maybe it sounds like a really pointless exercise but personally for me it enables me to go into a conversation, not like a robot, not with no emotion and no with no kind of feeling, but it goes in without that baggage. I mean, what I hear is, yeah, it's not detaching. I mean, clearly, you know, we all, I mean, it's very important, I think, because we all have emotions and I, you know, it's important that we connect to that. But I think the mantra mm. that I've learned along the way is how many times I made it about me. It's not about me, mm. you know? So I think yeah. what I'm also hearing is, if you, what if you took yourself out of the equation, you saw that person in their purity in that moment, yeah. whatever it was. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a powerful, it's a powerful gift too, especially for a leader. If we can identify those and give yourself grace. So we're all humans. Like I said, we all need our own support to like tease that apart. I get triggered. You probably get triggered. We all do, but the better I, I get at that, the better I can show up for others. And even now I can be in a meeting and in my head say, Oh, that triggered you. Okay. Put that aside. Keep listening. You know, like, Absolutely. All right. This isn't about me. I need to see this person if we're going to get somewhere. So that for me then links to what we talked about when we, we spoke earlier about the leader being in a position of a bridge, mm -hmm. a bridge between people, a bridge between tasks, a bridge between objectives and strategy and everything else. Like it's the, the leader that has to make all of those connections. And I think 
if you can't have that ability to understand and listen clearly, if you can't have that ability to accept people, if you can't have that ability to to stop the focus being about me rather than being about other people, you're never going to be that bridge. And yet you've got to facilitate that connection as a leader. You've got to facilitate those relationships. You've got to facilitate people upskilling to be able to execute on whatever work they're doing. That concept of a bridge for me is really important. I mean, if you look in politics now, for example, we're missing individuals that are able to bridge the divide between the part, the kind of like the, the, the bipartisan split that we see, whatever country we're in, whether it's the US or Europe or Asia, it's the same, right? I mean, fundamentally, you've got one side versus the other side. And their points of view are so polar that it becomes very difficult for people to really identify what's the right decision to make or who, who really will be the best people to support us. And yet, if you go back in history, you will see individuals that had that ability to bridge the difference. And that for me was like just fundamentally the reason for some of the challenges that we see now that we didn't see in the past or some of the different points of view that we we kind of we keep referring back to. I mean, you look at some of the great leaders and they do have that ability. And I don't just mean like political leaders. Who comes up for you? Are there leaders that come up for you? JFK is certainly one for me that had that ability to bridge. Martin Luther King had that ability to bridge. I mean, Gandhi, mm. ironically, I didn't agree with everything that he said, but he also was amazing at bridging the difference between a very kind of like traditional British way of thinking versus like the modern Indian way of thinking. And I'm like, I think, I mean, the list can go on and, and there are so many examples for me, but people who, who have that ability really stand out head and shoulders, I think, above others. Within organizations, again, you have those kind of leaders already and people know who they are because... It's the leader that when you walk away from a conversation with her or with him, you feel some kind of like personal connections. Like, well, hang on, like that person really did, did just kind of stop what they were doing, completely forgot about their schedule or their work and just spent five minutes talking to me about me. If you can get you out of the equation, you can, people want to be seen, respected and appreciated. Yep. You can't do that if, if you're sitting there in your mind trying to position something different or get your way or manipulate and we, exactly. we might not be able to put words yeah. on it, but we are amazing sensors. We feel it. We know yeah. it. So, yeah. Absolutely. All right. You ready to move into the lightning round? Go for it. First question. New emergent theme for you in this past year? Think big. Think big. Yeah. Think big in terms of connections, in terms of how where we are now, where we need to be in five years, where we need to be in 10 years, what's going to get us there, and how we build that mind muscle to be able to think big. All right, next question. Biggest challenge for you? Biggest challenge for me is knowing what comes next. If you were standing on stage and you had every manager in the world in front of you and you could share a theme or a message, what would you say to every manager? Please figure out how you be the bridge within your environment, how you be the facilitator of conversations, how you be the facilitator of understanding, how you be the facilitator of appreciation and acceptance between groups between others fundamentally that is something I'd, I'd want every leader every manager to be able to do this is a selfish one for me because i love music so much so the question is music that has impacted your life so a band a song what comes to mind oh man i i go with my flow so i mean it depends what mood i'm in heavy metal i love heavy metal um, on the train home from work, I love listening to opera, which is very bizarre. <laughs> I've never listened to that before, but I started listening to it now. Um, 
when I'm working out of the gym, I go back to my university roots and I, I love listening to house music and techno uh -huh. and stuff like that. So heavy metal. What's your what's your band? Oh, growing up is always Metallica or Guns N' Roses. Um, you know, the, some of the old school guys, they're, they're still the best. <laughs> me? Hold on a second. I got to show you stuff. I, I keep these. Uh, I keep Rolling Stones. I keep these Rolling Stones around me. So nice. I, Metallica. I, got, cool. I have I have great. Uh, I have Guns N' Roses off to my right as well. So I love that. I love it. Awesome. Awesome. Appetite for Destruction, one of the best albums of all time. Um, Tell me about uh, it. If you could take a vacation right now anywhere in the world, where would it be? One place I've always wanted to go is Iceland. Cool. Me too. I've always been attracted by the beauty and uh, the beauty of the nature, the power of the, the nature and just the isolation. Just like being out in the middle of nowhere with so much amazing stuff around you. Just to be able to absorb it all because there's no other distraction. There's nothing else there. It's like you and a massive iceberg or a massive mountain or a scary polar bear that's running towards you, whatever it might be. It's kind of like when you first moved to Japan, you're like still longing for that just isolation and like being with yourself. Exactly. It gives you that time to just really appreciate what's going on around you. Yeah, right. But I, I mean, Iceland itself for me is such a beautiful country. I'd love to go there. I'm with you on that. I agree with that. That's, that's up there for me. Um, book recommendation. One that I've read recently is A Life on Our Planet by David Attenborough. David Attenborough. And so this is something that I've not really ever been that knowledgeable on like global warming and the impact that that's having on the earth and everything else but i i i've always been fascinated by him because i think he's he's the embodiment of a lot of why, what i see a strong leader having he's so humble but he's so intelligent but he's just he has the ability to connect and to speak to people and to bridge i just find that super powerful so i read his book and was like yeah you know what there's so much in there that i just i was so naive about and like, yeah, we've got to we've got to start doing something about it. And this is again, it's just one other example of some key themes in society at the moment, whether it's to do with sort of like race or saving the, like the, the planet through avoiding deforestation or global warming, or whatever. It's like these are all these central themes that I'll be honest. I mean, I was very naive about a lot of them. Um, and his book was a, a big eye opener for me. And so now I'm starting to think. Okay, well, what can I do? Like me just by myself, like what actions can I take? And that's where it starts, right? It's like individuals, then you build and build and get more people doing it. And then we get traction and then we get results. You reference Gandhi. I go back to be the change you want to see in the world. Like what is it that bothers you? What do you want to see different? How can you be the change? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'd recommend that book if you've not read it. It's, it's very interesting. Podcast recommendation. I'm going to be honest. I actually don't listen to podcasts. So it's quite embarrassing because this is my first podcast recording but i've i've never actually listened to a podcast i don't know why well you can check out the the sprout uh humanity works podcast i would have to right <laughs> your podcast can be the first podcast you ever listen to not everybody oh, gets to say that's that a scary thought <laughs> <laughs> superpower what's your superpower empathy probably mm, that's a good one and final question how do you keep learning and growing i read a lot I listen to people a lot. I fail a lot, but I fail forward. I always try different things. And if it doesn't work, fine. What didn't work, just don't make the same mistake again. But I'm not scared of failing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've failed many times throughout my life, as I've already explained some, like school through to work and stuff. But you know, like stuff happens. As long as you don't repeat the same mistake, 
as long as you learn something positive from it, you know, there's always tomorrow and tomorrow is always a new day and a new day always comes with different opportunities. You've just got to embrace it and, and see what comes from that. Yeah. Um, so I, I read a lot. I, I write quite a bit. I've got like notebooks and things like that. I'm always carrying it around with me. And I'm just writing down what people are saying, even randomly on the train. Sometimes if I hear somebody say something that's really cool and I'll just make a note of it. Yeah. I, I, I just generally do that. I'm trying to make up for what, I missed out on when I was at school because I never had that mentality when I was at school of really wanting to learn, really wanting to be curious about what is out there. And, and I just, I missed out on that opportunity. I'm making up for that now. So I, I read religiously. I do a lot of, of, uh, of listening, not to podcasts, but certainly yeah. to like TED talks and things like that, even just to like the news. I mean, I'm, news from multiple different countries in multiple different languages as long as it's got english subtitles you know it's like it's amazing all these the different sort of like uh sources of information being able to filter the truth from the story is very difficult sometimes with all of the information that's available but the more you learn the more you can appreciate what's going on i agree and that's that for me is something i missed out on so i'm just kind of catching up making up for lost time well adam look i really appreciate having this opportunity to get to know you in this journey and this process to do your first podcast with you which will be hopefully the first one you listen to um but really thank you thank you for showing up the way you do thank you for sharing uh your stories and this really is a collection of stories that are going to help other people think about their careers, their journeys, and both the human and the professional side. And I really appreciate the time you've taken to do that. So thank you very much. My pleasure. I hope what little I've been able to share is of use to, to your listeners, but it's been awesome. Thank you for that. Humanity Works is hosted by me, Craig Foreman. Produced and edited by Alessia Campagna with technical production by Anthony Watson. And a special thanks to our executive producers, Leonie Rothwell and Marcus Worrall. To activate a world of powerful potential, visit Sprouta.com. Hi, I'm Leonie. And I'm Marcus. And together, we founded Sprouta. If you love our Humanity Works podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you listen. We can't wait to bring you more stories of amazing people doing amazing things in people performance and culture.